Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. My name is Stacy Brightman, and I am Vice President for LA Opera Connects, LA Opera's Division for Community, Engagement, and Learning. And it is our pleasure to welcome you to this gathering of some of the most extraordinary musicians and dynamic artistic leaders in the country. For the next hour, we are honored to have composers Juhi Bansal, Gabriela Lina Frank, Mia Imani Franklin, and Laura Karpman. Join us in a conversation moderated by Susanna Guzman. These women are redefining classical and film music. At the same time, they are smashing preconceptions and barriers for other artists. Each has become a champion of a more vibrant, inclusive future. And in that spirit, we are honored to thank and dedicate to all the women mentors who have lifted us up and have often seen more in us than we have in ourselves. Take it away, Susanna. Thank you. Oh, Stacy and Deborah, thank you all. And thank everybody at LA Opera Connects because you have found a way to continue to bring amazing product to our community, but more importantly tonight, to bring these amazing music women warriors together. Ladies, I wish we had a bottle of wine and a raging fire behind us and we were all in the same room. It's so lovely, lovely to see you and to meet you. One thing I know about each one of you is that you are all very involved in community. I know many of you work in universities. I hear we have two Wolverines, some Trojans here. And I just want to ask you, first off, maybe we could start with Nia. Could you tell us possibly what was, when did you know, what was the inspiration? What was that light where you thought, I'm going for it? And I'd like to ask you all that same question. For me, I've, I've always loved music. I grew up singing in my church um, in North Carolina and uh, did band and choir. But I never had, I guess, a, an example or a role model um, for a composer in my life, even though I, grew, I wrote my first song when I was five years old, just like a little ditty. But, but it was when I was in my sophomore year of chorus, um, we were watching a behind the scenes documentary of Shrek the Musical and um, the composer Tessori, uh, um, she wrote Shrek the Musical and I loved the music in it. And I was like, I wanna do this. I wanna write like she's doing in this documentary. And so, um, because I, I always had melodies and music within me, but I, I just never thought about notating it. It just really didn't occur to me until I actually saw someone, especially a woman in that, in that role doing that. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to go to school for this. Cause I really didn't know what I wanted to go to school for yet. I knew I, I mean, college is kind of just like my parents, I knew my parents wanted me to go. Um, but I didn't know what, what would I study? I'm, I mean, I'm not going to study songwriting, um, but composition, that was a challenge and I was up for it. <laughs> I can't wait to ask you more about this, but Laura, how about you? What you do everything, I mean, styles, genres, um, it's, it's amazing the different, and, and I hear you scat. I do. I, when, I, when I was, you know, there it is. When I was a kid, I started listening to Ella Fitzgerald and then I like, I memorized all of her scats. And, you know, it's funny because uh, we talk about influences, you know, she was a composer. Like people think, oh, that's improvised. No, if you hear four of her solos, 
they're all the same. So she composed that music. And just because she sang it and because it wasn't notated doesn't mean that that's not viable music composition. So frankly, I learned a lot about composing from Ella Fitzgerald. Like Nia, I started young. I never really thought about doing anything else. I think for me, it was more about uh, how. How am I going to do this? How am I going to exist in the world? How am I going to make a living at this? How am I going to, um, you know, later the questions became more, how am I going to make it in such a male-dominated field? And I'm sure we'll get into that. But it was about how to get where I wanted to go, not so much figuring out what I wanted it to be. Gabriela, how about you? What What was your first influence? Now, did you grow up in South America? No, I'm a I'm a Berkeley native. Yeah, my mother's Peruvian. Um, her father grew up in China, and so my mom's first language was Cantonese. And then it was um, she spoke a mix of Cantonese and Spanish and Quechua, which is the dominant Indian language in Peru. And she met my father, who was a Peace Corps volunteer. You know, he's a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx that joined when Kennedy started this program in the 60s. And my mother was 17. My dad was 21 in Chimbote, a small fishing village up in northern part of Peru. They were so young, but within a few months, they just said, yeah, we can do this. And they landed in Berkeley, where dad was a grad student at Cal. And that's how our little unit was started. So there's a, there's a musical gene on my dad's side of the family, but even though it was there and nobody was ever professional at it. It's like one of those things that you identify who, who has some physical trait that keeps popping around the family. And so there was always like a musical person. And so my grandmother, Lucy Frank, was the musical one. She was a young woman in depression, didn't have that kind of opportunity to train in New York. So when it skipped her son, skipped my older brother, and then came to, she'd call me her little cinnamon doll. When it came to the little cinnamon doll, she identified it right away, but I didn't have any, like, like what you were saying, Nia, I didn't have these role models of people that look like me and yeah. I was scholastically like my brother. Um, with my parents, you have to be scholastically <laughs> an, an overachiever. And I was studying Russian, believe it or not, in the late 80s. When I was coming of age, I was probably on my way to law school at some point. And I took this music program to round out my college applications. And it was at something called the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, which I had never heard of. Uh, I had been taking lessons and composing, but like what you're saying, Laura, some people say you're not composing till you're notating. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I was composing all these little ditties and all these little things. Then I took this program and it just blew my mind to walk into this building. And first of all, I just heard piano music from all over. And I realized the building was filled with like 50 pianos. There was a piano in every room, which was like a fantasy and textbooks instead of horrible algebra and chemistry with music. It was music in it instead. And I realized with this culture, but I also do remember thinking as I was seeing prodigies and looking around the school within about 48 hours, I noticed that nobody looked like me. My heart was like, boom, boom, boom. This is what I want to do. I know, I don't know anybody. It was just a visceral feeling. And I, I grew up in the future, even if I didn't have the details down. So it was something very unexpected, but in some ways not. We've been kind of headed this way, even if we didn't know it you know, all through our young lives. That is so exciting. Juhi, your journey is pretty a long journey. How To come from where you came from to create music, how did that happen? You know what? It's funny where Laura's mentioning kind of knowing all the way along that that's what she wanted to do. Mine is completely the opposite. I was uh, involved in, like I was taking piano lessons and things, as Gabriella, you mentioned, just for school. 
um, for fun when I was in high school and I, I loved it, but, you know, never had the thought that that was kind of a viable career option. And I remember I was in Hong Kong at the time and doing college applications and, you know, I was going to go for a degree in computer science. That was the plan. Um, and I remember looking, I think it was at USC first, which is where I wound up anyway. That's how I'm in LA. But looking at their course catalog and realizing, wow, there's a, there's a degree in music composition. I didn't have any idea anything like this ever existed. People do this for a living. And it was kind of this random Hail Mary. I just, you know, Googled their composition portfolio requirements. And like, I think I can do that. Just kind of threw together this portfolio. And to this day, I have no idea how I got into that program. I think somebody must have made a mistake somewhere in the admissions process. Um, but kind of honestly really found out what composition was after I was enrolled in a program and here and loved it. And I have to admit, felt very much like I was out of place because I'd never thought about doing this seriously. I didn't know, I'd never had a composition lesson, didn't really know anything about it, but absolutely fell in love with it at the same time. And, you know, now that's a very long time ago. Well, you said something that I think is really important that I want to ask Nia about because all of us have had someone in our path who said, who went like this, go no further, stop. There have been people who told us we can't do what we do. And Nia, this was, I was blown away by this. I read this on, on I, you were an interview online and you were doing college applications and someone literally said to you, you have as much chance of being a composer as being an NFL player. This is to a college applicant. How do you take that dream and go <laughs> and and how did you have the strength and courage to say, no, excuse me, get out of my way. How did you just forget about that? Well, I don't think I'll ever forget that. It was, I mean, I was 17 when, when a college professor told me that. And I, sh it was, I was showing him my first piece that I had ever written or ever notated, shall I say. And it was tough to hear, but I just think something in me was just resilient. And it was like, you know what? This is just one audition. I still have like four more. And so I just was like, okay, this probably isn't the school for me. That's okay. And I went on and Thankfully, East Carolina University accepted me. They saw something in my little piece. It was called Free Emotion. I'm so proud of it. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it's definitely tough when you have people that are like, no, this isn't for you. Um, and especially when it's coming, I, it was, I have to say it was a male uh, teacher that, that told me that. Uh, and I just think that as educators and now myself being in that space where I, I mentor young girls and boys that are composers and I would never say, you know, this isn't for you, especially after one piece that I've seen of theirs. I think it's a, a craft and you have to work at it. It's not easy, but it's so possible. So it was tough, um, but it's honestly, it was motivating at the time. And uh, now, you know, after Actually, I, I guess I can say I'm a real composer now. Like, you know, I have my degrees, not not just degrees, but my pieces are being programmed. And so I, I hope that that professor is out there and maybe has heard one of my new pieces and likes it a little better. <laughs> a little. Ladies, have any, what, do you have a memory of any time in your lives when someone has said that to you? Like, who do you think you are? Or I mentioned earlier that somebody once said um, to me that the good news was that I looked really good in red. That was my that was my feedback. <laughs> Do you remember anything, Gabriela? Maybe when somebody said to you, "Seriously, composition as a woman." I like to say that my first lucky break was 
when I announced to my parents after that first day at a conservatory in San Francisco that this is what I was going to do, that they just took a moment and then they said, okay, if you're going to do this, we're going to support you and you need to go deep. You need to go deep. And that was my first lucky break was that I, from the very get go, I had that kind of support system because those messages came later. They were really explicit. Other times they were implied or in very, you know, all the gradations, I'm sure we've experienced all of these things. And the youngins these days use the word microaggression. I used to just say insult. There's another insult that, that came my way. But, you know, Neil, you're talking about your college applications and, and um, Julie, you were talking about, you don't know how you got in. I don't know how I got in at Rice University. And I know if I were to apply with the portfolio that I had then, like today, I would not get in. So it really begs the question of how we're identifying composably talent, that we don't do a great job of identifying it. And that's the first you know, issue. It's not like, can you play in tune or can you play these Mozart concertis? And composition is, is messy. And uh, creativity comes from a deep place in the psyche. How can somebody weigh your psyche when you're applying? But when I was 17, I remember uh, winding up at Rice and Rice had just opened up its new building that, at the Shepherd School of Music. So my freshman class, we were the first one to use that building. And it's, it is gorgeous and acoustically just really advanced building with beautiful new piano, Steinway with a, in every practice room with a view. I mean, everything, I thought that was just normal that all music schools were sumptuous <laughs> like that. I remember walking around just thinking like they built this for me. This is for me. Oh my God, you know, and I found this piano and I cracked open this score, a Ravel piece I was learning at the time. And I wasn't in it for that long when all of a sudden the door flies open to my room and one of the piano faculty members comes in and he starts yelling at me and he's telling me, what are you doing? Get off that piano, get back to work, step away. You know? And I realized, oh my God, he thinks I'm one of the cleaning ladies. He thinks I'm one of the janitorial staff because they, I present Latina and they were all Mexican women or, or Central American women. And then as I was you know, speechless, just trying to take this all in, I remember also thinking, and what if I were a maid? Would that be so bad that a maid can sit down and play with Val? You know, play the virtuoso work. And that was my first day in. And then when I explained, you know, who I was, and I was in so-and-so studio, and you realized that I had the, the right vocabulary, I had the inclusive names to, to speak and didn't speak with such a heavy accent. He apologized, but I also remember it was angry. Like he was begrudgedly apologizing and so, you know, there, I had a lot of lifelines, all these people that really believed in me, thank God, because all of them offset the no's. You know, you have to have enough yeses to offset the no's. And if you come from a strong family, then you have that to galvanize you through this. And, and you learn to almost expect it. It's sad to say, it's like women learn to not walk by the, themselves at night. You, you, you have these defenses also in the work environment and you try and preempt them. And even if we don't know, we're constantly strategizing. I mean, I'm already seeing bits of my story and just a little bit that I'm hearing from, from all you ladies as well. I'd love to say something. I think that what Nia and Gabriella are talking about is unconscious and conscious bias. And it's a, not a thing of the past. And when you look at people are saying, oh, where's the pipeline? What's happening? There are no women composers, all that, that stuff that all of it's untrue. But 
I, I think that part of our responsibility and part of the responsibility of everybody who's listening to this is that has to be rooted out. And it, it has to be rooted out now. We cannot be listening to stories like this anymore. And we cannot tolerate it or think it's funny or gee, how did you overcome that? that, it's, it, that it, both of those stories are completely unacceptable. And as educators and people who care about the world, we have to hold people's feet to the fire. I know this happens where I currently teach. And, uh, and I've seen it happen in the admissions process when I've been involved in admissions to conservatories. And it's like, it just has to stop and we have to, it's not okay. It never was. And now it's nauseating and we can't make light of it. I concur. And I call you women warriors in music for a reason, because we have found whatever strength that is to cross over these roadblocks and hurdles. There also, we have the, the blessing of having people who believe in us. And Juhi, who was that for you? Was there someone who, when you were in this discouragement, I like to work in arcs. So I think if we get, remember where we came from in that that I'm so angry, but I'm going to make it work. Was there someone in your life who helped you in that capacity, who helped you say, or was it you? I mean, you know, it was going to sound cliche, but Gabriella mentioned this earlier. Family, I think, is a huge one. I mean, my family are not musicians. They know nothing about the work I do. When they listen to it, it's always like, that's really nice, honey. That's great. <laughs> uh, but you know, at the same time, there's just this level of support that I know I can rely on. If it's been a bad day or so, you know, you get a horrible review or somebody hated something that you wrote, I know who I can call and like have a sympathetic ear. And, you know, they may not tell exactly the same stories, but in their own line of work, there's something they can share. And we're kind of talking about life experiences and just kind of keeping things in perspective about that sense of it'll get better. I th I'd say other musicians, it's also something about being able to look at people like Gabriella and Laura and some of the women composers who are, I think really have been charting away for uh, longer than some of us have been around, but in a way that you've dealt with things that, you know, Gabriella, you're talking about that, that story. I hope, I hope that wouldn't happen these days. I can't promise that it wouldn't, but I hope it wouldn't. And it's because of people like you and other women composers who've done so much to just be very vocal about it and to, you know, advocate for, as you said, and try to change the scene and the circumstance a little bit. So there's also something about that when you're having a horrible experience, just looking at other women who have been through it and seeing kind of their careers and that they survived it and not only survived, but thrived beyond it. I have a burning question for Laura. You are in so many different genres. For me, I was a waitress and an opera singer. How did, was that your parallel path? Is that you just said, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this. And it all happened to be in music. How did that all, every single thing you do has such a, a, a unique flavor, opera, jazz, film composing. How did that attract you? All those different, especially at a time when, you know, we had to make our presence known in the world as women. And I feel that you just started right away in that world. How'd that, how did, what was your evolution? Oh God, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, we're talking about all these things. I, I think that, that I always wanted to um, have a lot of options. You know, so we talked about our paths and, and, you know, I grew up wanting to be, a great classical music composer. 
That was my dream. That's, and I was going to teach in a university and I wanted to be a New York intellectual, even though I'm a second generation, you know, Los Angelino. And then when I got to New York, it was, it was too cold. You know, I came running home, but, but, um, but it, it, I think that for me, I think my life in music has been, um, you know, it's been, it, it is and continues to be wonderful, but it's about pivoting. And I think that for a lot of people who face obstacles, um, it, you see a wall, you can't get through it. You can't get over it. You've got to go around it. So um, I, when I was in New York and living the new music life, I didn't see a lot of future for me there. I think it's because I was, you know, I always sort of incorporated jazz and my music is just part of who I am as a person. Um, at that point, it was like modernism versus, versus minimalism. By the way, minimalism won, in case you guys didn't realize that. <laughs> as a Babbitt student, I can say he, you know, he lost. It's like, it, you know, but, but so, you know, so then it was like, well, what am I going to do with this? You know, I can't go downtown and be with the Philip Glass people. And, and so, you know, he actually recommended me to go to the Sundance Institute. Um, and having grown up in L.A. and grow, grown up around Hollywood, it was the last Thing on earth I wanted to do. But I found that it was a, like a super practical way of making music. And I loved that about it. I loved the sort of disposable nature of film music in a way that if it wasn't like the most amazing thing in the world, it, you weren't gonna, it wasn't gonna be the end of the world. And because of the, the way technology was interacting with music, I felt there was a future for me there. And I embraced it really largely, I mean, I was always interested in drama and I grew up as a singer of classical music too. And when I was at Michigan as an undergrad, I was a voice principal. So I sang everything. And it's funny cause um, everybody humored me, you know? So like I was singing and true love and then I'd sing awful fun, we, you know, everything. But they didn't care cause I never was gonna be a singer but it's fun because I really, I learned a lot about drama from studying opera which then I took into film composition. I mean, they're very similar, right? They're, they're, it's not like some different thing. They both use exactly the same principles. It was a natural um, fit for me, but I learned a lot about how to write music from, you know, my first gigs were these lifetime movies of the week. And, you know, every, and, you know, suddenly I was going from studying 12-tone music with Milton Babbitt to going like, ding! You know, like one piano note and writing a sad and short melody. But I learned how to write a sad and short melody and how to really get to the point musically in no time because there wasn't time. You didn't have time to evolve movement one. I mean, that person was in the hospital, you know, and she had to give a rousing speech by act seven. So it's like you, you had to learn how to do it, you know, so I did. And it was good for me. It was really good for me. That's so amazing. I know that, like I said, I was a waitress. I waited tables up until the week that I sang at the Met. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty fun. But Nia, you've had a really interesting parallel career. How in the world did you become Miss America? I mean, that's, that, I, I, I told you this before. I teach at a high school. I have a high school opera company and they all knew who you were. Um, what has this platform that you have used both this this amazing national competition in tandem with your music? How has that how has that made you grow? How has that changed your life? It's an unheard genre for me. Well, to answer your question, I still don't know how I became Miss America. It was just God because I 
I did not grow up a pageant girl, you know, no toddlers and tiaras, none of that. It was really, I was in grad school at the time. I was studying to get my master's and I was so, it was so different than undergrad. I was actually a little bit bored because it's like you have two classes, three classes, and then you write all day. And I mean, it was just like, what do I do with the rest of my time? And so I was like, you know, I want to find a way to get in my community, do something besides sit in this practice room all the time. And so I um, ended up competing in Miss North Carolina, lost both years. I competed twice, made top 10. My platform, by the way, was at the time it was called Music for Life. So I lost in Miss North Carolina. Um, but the bright side of that was that one day later, I moved to New York and started a fellowship with uh, Lincoln Center. And so um, I was doing this fellowship and living my life. I thought I had actually aged out of the system. Um, so I was just like, I'm, I'm in New York now. I'm focusing on, you know, being a composer, working on music, networking, all of that. And it was going well. But then I got a phone call from the director of Miss North Carolina telling me that they had raised the age limit and that I should come back home and try again. And I was like, um, I'll think about it. But I just, I was like, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm really, I was in my element in New York. I loved it. But then it, February came around, February of 2018. And, you know, I said, why not? I'm just going to try it one more time. What do I have to lose? Um, I was living in New York and had established residency there. So I ended up competing uh, for Miss New York and won. And so it was like, oh, I have a state title now. And like, what do I do? And so I just continued to network. I partnered with like Sing for Hope, their organization um, founded by two Juilliard students. Uh, they're incredible. And what they do for the community in New York is just fabulous. So I basically took my, my pageant titles and combined it with my passion of music. Um, and I wanted to bring more awareness to music, not only for women, but just for the, the genre of music in general, that's not just mainstream music. So film composing, um, concert music, all of it. I just, I wanted to help expand people's minds on what that even means. Because for me, I learned, to me, it feels like it was later in my life, what kind of composition even was. And so I wanted to kind of, I wanted to give a platform for that, for classical music and, and for arts in general. Um, so I changed the name of my platform for music for life to advocating for the arts. Um, because in New York, I mean, there are certain schools that just don't have the budgets and it was tough. Um, like I, I was in certain schools doing that, doing that supplemental work. And it was a need that I really saw. And I wanted to use my platform to bring light to that. That is amazing. And it's really such an, a needed thing right now to have people who look like all of us and who are musicians to be giving back to the community and to education in that way. Um, but it's not always a way we can ha make a living. Juhi, did you, were you an accountant? Did you do something? Um, were you a ballerina? Is there, what, how did you survive and thrive? Oh, that's a great question. I was a martial arts instructor. Does that count? Yes, that's so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that was, oh gosh, I've done a bunch of things. I mean, you were talking about waitressing. I've worked retail when I was first graduating. It was retail and teaching some martial arts classes on the sides and tutoring in math because I've done at least part of that comp sci degree from earlier and kind of you know, just gradually as things evolved, getting more and more into teaching. And now I've taught at a few different schools, community college here in Los Angeles, um, now at the University of Hartford. And it's, you know, I, I love that now more of my work, it's like, a, it's a better balance, I think, between teaching and writing music. But I think there's actually something I love about having those experiences of working retail, of, you know, having taught martial arts classes where I'm still the only girl in a room of like 50 or 60 guys. I feel like there's something from that that like really built a sense of 
resilience is probably a good word. I think, Nia, you had mentioned that word earlier, and that was one that I, I really love in this context, um, because I think it shapes a lot of, when I think about being a composer also, that's one of the biggest things that I've kind of kept with me and tried to keep um, very actively. Well, don't pick a difficult art form like martial arts. That's amazing. Very, very needed in the music business in general. Gabriela, how about yourself? Did you, was this a, were you a Survive and Thrive person? Were you, how, how did this work for you? Did you always do music? Did you have a second? We call them parallel careers. I kind of did, but it didn't pay any money. I remember when I was at Rice in Michigan afterwards, I spent so, so much time just learning the culture of the conservatory, what a masterclass was and, and what a, an orchestra audition was, what was viola lit class. And, and that really consumed me. I mean, I was a real nerd. I was first in the building at seven in the morning, the janitors would have to kick me out. First of all, I was friends with all the Mexican maids, you know, at the school. <laughs> they would put their cleaning equipment in, in my preferred practice room so I could go grab it later, you know, and so, but, you know, and I was the last one to leave at night when the lights started going out, you know, when they would just automatically go out trying to force, you know, the, the workaholics out and, and I would prop up a broom. But I also did start to do volunteer work on my own. I wouldn't be here except my dad was a Peace Corps volunteer. So I wouldn't be here except for a civic initiative. I remember I, I manned a rape crisis hotline and I taught ESL for these maids and, and others and free piano lessons in Houston for mostly African-American and Latino kids. And I also remember I kept all that quiet because I just had this feeling that many of my teachers would not take me as seriously if I was spending any time at all outside of music. It was a different time. It really was a different time. And in Michigan, what was really formative for me was to volunteer at a, at a men's prison for three years. And this was a, a group of mostly Latino inmates, uh, part of a group called ASTA. I think they're still going, which means striving or, or um, moving towards in Spanish, but with an acronym for Hispanic American Striving Towards Achievement. And I just talked to them about music and I talked to them about Latin American composers. And you know, I was in my mid twenties at the time and I just began traveling on my own in Latin America. And so I was picking up some copy work, but it was really good for me to go deep into the conservatory world and to really understand that. Um, I caught the tail end of, of serialism and, and as we were sort of kicking and screaming our way out of it, you know, I saw that whole transition and I also really picked up on the fact that there was no Latin American music history courses. I never studied with a woman. I never studied with a person of color. And it's, it's alarming to me that when I go and I guest at these same conservatories now today, I feel like I'm stepping back in time. That's the 90s again. I, I hear the same music still being practiced, the same competitions in, on the bulletin boards, you know, those hallways with all the flyers. And it's really weird. And the demographics have, I guess, improved marginally, you know, but it's, it's at least a generation or more. And I, I feel young even, like I'm a little bit panicked, like I'm behind or I forgot a course that I'm signed up for. I mean, all these sort of old anxieties come rearing back to life and, and a little bit of shame, like I'm not doing enough work. We're such workaholics when we're in the conservatory that I'm not working hard enough. So I think that was what I was developing my parallel career was some sort of questioning of, of my impact in the larger society rather than just going after the commissions and in the gilded concert halls and uh, going to big cities and 
working with constituencies that would be impressed if I got into Tanglewood. You know, I was actually working with people that didn't care at all about these kinds of things. And that was, that was a very, very um, powerful influence on me that still, that, that was a running theme for my postgraduate life. That's a really excellent way to put it. It's a running theme because in each one of you, I can see the running themes in each one of your works, the running themes of where you've come from, the running themes of what your influences, what your loves are is really evident in your music. And I also just quickly, because we're going to start to listen to some of your music, but I know, Laura, you said you were a singer and I know that Nia's a singer. What was um, Gabriela and uh, Juhi, what was your first instrument? Was it voice? Was it violin? For me, it was piano. My mom forced me into piano lessons. I thought I would hate it, and I loved it instead. I love your mom. <laughs> That's really great. Good for her. But you all use influences that aren't typical in classical music. And I have to tell you, I believe that this is where the new direction is coming from. I think that this is not starting and finishing. This is a beautiful wave. And I believe that American composers and women composers are creating these amazing new works that we're doing that also, I was just listening to a little excerpt from all of your works. They're so vocal friendly too supported in the meat of the voice, telling the stories that are happening right now. Um, but right, I have somebody, um, it's Judy, who's a single mom making a living from teaching piano and random freelance work, but composition is her love. How does someone like her who doesn't really have a lot of time for networking get heard besides posting on YouTube? Anybody have an answer for Gabriela? I mean, for her name's Judy, sorry. Just to be clear, it is challenging. Motherhood is something that's, it's, that this industry doesn't support. And, you know, it's something that, that has to change. This is, this is challenging for somebody who goes to the conservatory and leaves graduating with connections, you know, among schoolmates. I would suggest writing for somebody that is in your network now. And then kind of like when, if you're single and you want to, you know, get together, you ask like your treasured cousin or your sister or your best friend, your old roommate to set you up with somebody is to not be shy and say, okay, you write for somebody that you know, and then say, okay, because I believe that like attracts like, to ask them to introduce you to somebody and maybe include them, maybe include that person. But a lot of times it's person by person. It's really, it's just person by person. And it gets easier when momentum builds, but you want to attract the right people. You don't want to just write for anybody. So ask that person to like set you up on a good blind date, not not on a not on one just to keep you busy. That's great, Laura. Did you you look like you had a you're about to have a suggestion? I don't know. Maybe I do have a suggestion. I don't know. I you know I think that one of the things that we're that we're all discovering as kind of in this pandemic life and and that I've known you know because I've spent my whole life doing it is how great recording is and um, how possible it is to record. And so I, I think I would encourage her, what is the audience now? You know what I mean? Right now the audience is through social media, as she said on YouTube, and I, don't, I think that's a great thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that it's, you know, that if you can be clever about how you can make music happen, um, a lot of my students, um, the people who are starting out in film music, I give them a, a video and I say, I don't want you to use anything except for things you can find around your house and sounds you can make on your own. So that, that they have to li literally use the kitchen sink 
and their voices and, you know, whatever else is possible. And then what happens is that you figure out how to record music and how to make interesting compositions through recording. And I think that that's something that's, that's really interesting right now. And I think a lot of people have discovered um, new ways of making music with online recording. So it's, it's kind of a half suggestion. I love that. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that later. We're going to hear some music and get ready to be moved. And we're going to feature the music of two of our esteemed guests, Gabriela Lina Frank and Juhi Bansal. And when we return, we're going to come back to more Q&A and close with some more music.
Oh, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for that gorgeous music. We are just about to wrap up, but I have a couple things on that hung the sky. What influenced you on that? It is literally celestial. Chuhi, that was just stunning. Where was that performed? Uh, that was actually here in Los Angeles at the Huntington Gardens at Rothenburg Hall. Um, that piece was such a joy because that was actually an LA opera project that we did uh, with the community college PCC here down the street. And your word celestial, that's exactly what it was. It's a cantata, it's about an hour long show, all about the stories different cultures have told about the stars, because I just thought it was so fascinating the way that we all look at the same stars and often similar constellations, if not exactly the same constellations and kind of have these very overlapping stories about them. So it was, uh, the show was about that, but that piece in particular, it was a Japanese text that I just thought was absolutely gorgeous by uh, Dogen Kigen. And the text is, for four and 40 years, I've hung the sky with stars. Now I leap through what's shattering. And I just thought that was so gorgeous. Oh, and to do it at the Huntington. Oh, how, who were your performers? Did, are those LA Opera Connects performers? Uh, yeah, they are. So it was uh, Shabnam, Kalbasi, and um, Ashley, and a number of uh, students from Caltech, students from Pasadena City College, um, a few soloists also on faculty at PCC. Oh, well, just absolutely stunning. And it's just so passionate. So um, I have another question, and it's from Caitlin. And Caitlin wants to know, how important do you think it is to copyright your works immediately after composing them? Does anybody have a, an idea about how to answer Caitlin on that? The brief answer, I don't think it's particularly important only because technically they're automatically copyrighted the second that you put them in any kind of fixed form. It doesn't hurt, I don't think, but I, I honestly don't think for most people that becomes an issue until you're getting a lot of exposure and a lot of play um, to like register it with the copyright office. But just my opinion. Oh, that's good. How about ladies? Have you Do you just have a catalog of your music saved up for when you need it? And then you get it copyright, or what do you, how do you do that? I, I mean, there are so many, there's so many things. I mean, a lot of the work that I do is commissioned um, from, um, you know, um, studios and stuff. Uh, but uh, I think you can join a performance rights organization too. And, and, and you know, ask at BMI CSAC um, and, um, and then register your works, which, you know, means that you get royalties when they're performed. They offer you that without any other protections, but there you go. So, uh, so that's a possibility. And then of course, a lot of people are self-published now, or you can get a publisher and, and, and probably Gabriella or, or the others can speak to that a little bit more effectively. Well, before I let, I let you go, I'd like to ask every one of you to think about um, how would you tell people right now in this time of COVID, how has that affected your work? How are you moving forward? In other words, first, Laura, please, what's next for you? Well, I mean, you know, it's been a really interesting time for me because I had to score Lovecraft Country and because it needed an orchestra. I started an online orchestra um, and we trained all the musicians how to record. So we had sort of seminars and training. And, and so all that music that you hear um, on the show and in the soundtrack has been uh, people recording in their own living rooms and then putting it together. And, and so that has been really amazing. So I've done that. I'm doing a, another series for Marvel right now, and I've, I've been commissioned for, uh, by Opera Theatre St. Louis to write an opera about the pandemic, and I've chosen to write a comedy, which is going to be about parenting in the pandemic, which I can tell you that it is indeed a comedy. Uh, it's a tragic comedy. 
Um, but it's uh, it's pretty crazy. So I'm doing that. I'm going to start that, I think, tomorrow. Oh, my. You've been busy in COVID. That's really good. I have been. I'm really, really fortunate. But we've also had to really pave a path because we did when we shut down in March, I didn't know how I, how I was going to finish the show. And none of us did. And we all had to devise every aspect of the post-production had to figure out how to do this. So now I kind of am one of the people who knows how to do this. So I'm continuing on with that with the Marvel show. And then I've got another one coming up. And so it's really, uh, you know, it's about people learning how to record in their own spaces, which is kind of what I was saying, you know, to the, to the woman who didn't really know how to get her music out there. It's like, there's so much, there's so many cool things that we can do right now. I agree with you. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you all this, Nia, if you'll answer that question too about COVID. But before you go to that, ladies, do you feel like your womanhood influences the kind of music you write or do you just write? That was a question from one of our LA Opera students, Lourdes. She would like to know. I don't know if it influences the music I write. I mean, I being a woman is certainly a part of who I am. Uh, but I will say from a technical standpoint, something as simple as how big you put your name on the music that you write. That's, make it bigger, ladies. Anybody listening? Apparently, I, <laughs> one of my uh, mentors, um, you know, we were just talking last week about how, you know, make sure you put your name bigger on these things. He note in his students, he notices that the younger girls that he teaches, they normally put their names like teeny tiny, like 12 font, while the guys are putting it in like 35 font on their scores. So it's those, it's those small things that really make a difference. Um, but as far as COVID times, I would say COVID definitely was a struggle for me at the beginning. I mean, I went from literally traveling the world on a plane every two days to, uh, you know, preparing for an opera. I was about to make my debut in an uh, opera with um, a company called Piedmont Opera. It's in my hometown. And then the week before opening night, shut down, canceled. Um, so I spent a lot of this time writing. I actually just finished an orchestral score that will be premiered um, next year. Um, so be, look out for that. Um, and then also just writing more. I love chamber music and connecting with a lot of my past colleagues from college has been a joy, um, you know, because we're all in a situation where chamber music is kind of the easiest thing to do right now. So it's been a lot of fun and it's definitely shaped, I think, the way I'll mo I will uh, move going forward because I think living in a pandemic has showed me that really anything is possible. If you can continue to have a passion for what you do and like Laura said, make it work somehow, some way, then you can, you'll be all right. Has so. the technology daunted you at all? The Zooming, the Skyping, the Bluetooth Yeti microphones. Nia, has that been any issue for you at all? I don't think it's been a huge issue. I think it's definitely one of those things though, that technology is great, but I do love to take a take time off and take time away, even if it's just going for a walk outside, being in nature. Um, but the technology side does come pretty easy to me. I will say that it's gotten stronger though. Like even like, again, Laura said with the recordings, just trying to be more prolific and, and lay things down myself. I mean, I, I think I focus so much on kind of like Gabriella was saying on the conservatory of music. Um, and it took me a while to break out of that. I think it was actually reversed. Like in undergrad, I was so consumed with it. But then in grad school, I had a professor who uh, broke me out of that. And now I'm just going forward with that. Writing more for myself is really cool. As a vocalist, it's like, you know what, maybe I should write more for me. I think that's something that, you know, while I have my voices still working okay, like, let's use it. So recording myself, having microphones, that's been really nice to do. And 
Yeah, sometimes challenging, but I think, you know, YouTube is great, just like YouTubing it and figuring out, like, how do I do this is really helpful too, or asking a friend or a colleague. That is such a great, that and the big name, I think making your signature really big, those are, that's really good advice. I love that. Gabriela, what's next for you? What are you up to? How have you struggled and, and overcome it in this COVID time? Well, you know, as this vaccine and, and several of them are starting to prove promising, I'm seeing people starting to talk to me about, well, let's get your deadlines back on. So my vacation from all of those are <laughs> is over. But, you know, on the not so lighthearted side, you know, this was really difficult for many of my composers at my academy. And they're my babies. You know, I want them all to do really well. I love every one of them. And I have about 70 of them that have come through. It's out of my house, you know, so it's, it's really, you know, close to my heart. So we've been, I've been pouring a lot of resources into them, you know, finding them commissions and acting like a mini agent, the way my agent does for me and just trying to get them work and keep them going and, and doing a lot of matchmaking with performers and just writing solo pieces, duos, if they're writing for roommates, that kind of thing. And the other thing that really consumed us this year, I think, you know, the Black Lives Matter was an amazing time for me because these discussions we're having in the classical music world about what it means to be a musician of color. I remember when that started to happen, I almost couldn't believe it. And I had been holding my breath for decades, waiting for these conversations. And I was a, I was a phenomenon in my conservatory because there weren't very many people of color. And, and these conversations that I see my composers having, it's, it takes my breath away. I'm so happy that, that they're in this kind of environment. And it's been a retrospective time as I've gone back almost year by year and re-examining these experiences and really just going, my God, I don't know how I made it through. The attrition rate was so high that you don't see very many women of color with, with you know, careers of substance, Gen X coming out and, and being able to, to have some influence now. So that has been really powerful. Juhi, what's up next for you? You know, it's interesting to think about you know, it's been a horrible year in so many ways, but I think one of the things that's been really interesting for me, just all the things that you kind of think of as normal have just gone so far out the window. I kind of feel like I've been left with this sense that all of a sudden anything is possible. So there's a kind of, in a weird way, I mean, I'm not happy about, there's been some really rough things this year, but I'm really excited about that sense of kind of rediscovery. I feel like everybody's getting and kind of finding new ways to move forwards and reimagining not just how we do the work, but also as Gabriella, you were talking about kind of these communities and what what our society is like, our musical society is like. Um, I have a project, I think some, somebody had asked that question earlier about womanhood, and I'm just going to go back to that in the sense that I don't think womanhood for me at all affects what I, the music I write. I think I just write, but I do think it affects what I choose to write about. So one of the programs that I have coming up that I'm super excited about uh, is I think for the Prototype Festival. Um, and it's kind of, it's a piece about womanhood and identity. And it's kind of built around the story of the Bangladesh Girls Surf Club, who I think are just this fascinating group. I can talk about them all day, so I won't just Google them if you don't know who they are but it's been kind of this sense of, well, it's COVID, so we can have collaborators from all around the world and that doesn't raise the budget. We can have a piece that's about surfing and it's got a Hindustani singer and a Western singer and a bunch of, you know, overdubbed tracks that we wouldn't get to do in real life. 
So kind of just trying to find the positive spin and the opportunities within all of this. That's so beautiful. And I do believe that all of every one of you, your perspectives are radiant in your music. And I love that. So we are about to wrap up. But before we go, because I won't have a chance to ask you this afterwards. Nia, what are we hearing of yours? And can you tell me a little bit about what um, is your inspiration for the piece that we're presenting today? Sure. So this is an older piece of mine. It's called Hymn for Keys, actually, and it's written for solo piano. The inspiration for this piece was I had already written two solo piano pieces, technically three if you count that first piece, Free Emotion. And it's just something about the piano that I love. I, I, was, I was drawn to it from the moment I started composing. But I was like, I want to write something that feels more like grown, something more adult, something that shows all the things I've learned um, about the piano and what I like about the piano, I think. And so that, that's what the piece ended up being. And uh, the person that's performing it, he, his name is Jonathan Levin, fabulous pianist, uh, teaches at the Manhattan School of Music and uh, lives in North Carolina. So he's like, we have that North Carolina, New York thing. That is wonderful. I can't wait to hear it. And Laura, I did get to hear a snippet of your piece. And once again, I just want to say I love the way you write for voice. Um, just beautifully supported. Could you tell us something about the piece? Yeah, this was for Lovecraft Country. And uh, basically, the episode is about the Tulsa massacre of 1921. I was writing it right around the time of George Floyd's death. They were licensing a poem by Sonia Sanchez for an earlier part of the episode. And I, I suggested to Misha Green, who's the you know creative force behind Lovecraft, I said, look, I would love to write a requiem for the victims of that massacre. And of course, it's a requiem for, for all, all these victims. And I'd like to re reset the Sonia Sanchez poem. And so you hear it first with Sonia Sanchez reciting the poem. And then for the very last scene of the episode and going through the end credit, I reset that thing with Janai Brugger singing the soprano. And what was amazing is to get kind of a proof of concept, I sent a video of Janai singing Pamina walking through the fire, which is exactly what the character does in Lovecraft to the showrunner, Tamisha, and said, can we try this? And she said, yeah, let's try it. So, you know, Janai is, is my muse, my vocal muse, I have to say. And, uh, and I know, you know, I know she can record at home. So that was also part of the consideration. And so I wrote this piece for her. And I, I think, you know, when we talk about expanding audiences, the thing that was so incredible about it was opera within the context of television deeply touched people. I have never in my life been reached out to like I, like I was for that. I mean, I, I reached out to like Francesca Zambella, everybody I know in the opera world and said, we are missing an audience because a lot of the people who saw the show had never heard an opera voice before. And they thought it was such a, it had the dignity that the scene deserved. And I, I just have to say like, not in, a, in this one of these kind of panel-y ways, but that it blew me away. Not a lot does that at this point in my life, but it blew me away. And so I think we're missing an audience here um, for all of us involved and, and loving concert music that people, people are open to this. We have to figure out how to reach them. I think that's brilliant. I have some students from the LA County High School for the Arts who came specifically to hear this piece. We have some beautiful music and we want to thank you, the administrators, the patrons, the opera lovers, the fans. Enjoy the musical Coda featuring the music of Nia Imani Franklin and Laura Cartman.
Thank you, Laura, Nia, Gabriela, Juhi. And this is the end of our evening. We want to thank you all and hope that you have a blessed week and your support and enthusiasm for everything that happens in music here. And Hildegard's, you guys rock. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.